right. Thank you for tuning in and joining us for another episode of Politics and Pints here on Jackman Radio. Uh, very excited today to be joined by a special guest, a candidate for Congress from California's 18th Congressional District. His name is Rishi Kumar. Rishi, thanks for joining us today. How you doing? My pleasure, Eric. Uh, great to connect with you. And uh, we're going coast to coast for this one. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been one of the beautiful things about uh, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign and the people I met in her campaign. Um, obviously, Cullen Tiernan is the uh, mutual friend that you and I have. He um, told me about your campaign and I actually watched, um, he did a Facebook Live with you some time ago. And, um, you know, we were just chatting about your campaign and he said, hey, maybe uh, maybe sometime I could have uh, Rishi on Jackman Radio. So it's great that we made it happen and I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Eric. I'm very honored to be talking to you. Yeah. So uh, currently right now, you're a city councilor in Saratoga out there in California, and you are running against an entrenched, deeply entrenched incumbent, um, Anna Eshoo. Is that is Eshoo right? Is that how I pronounce it? Um, and, you know, I've just looked into some of where her money comes from and just she's been in there for 28 years, if I'm not mistaken. I'm 33 years old. So just to put that in context for people who are watching. Um, so why are you running for Congress? And what do you think it is about your platform and your background that, um, you know, says, look, I'm more qualified to be uh, in Congress and we should uh, throw the incumbent out? So, so Eric, you know, I, I am an activist. I've always been an activist and I really feel for the issues and uh, I connect deeply when there are issues that uh, trouble people. You know, I wanted to do something. And that was really why a high-tech geek like me got into the world of politics because I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm a problem solver. And there were some uh, huge challenges that came my way, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, but uh, that led to where I am today. You know, I would never have dreamt that I would be running for Congress, but uh, I do believe that, you know, a path has been shown to us when we go out there and respond to the needs of the people. And if uh, that is helping people, let's keep on doing it, you know. So I think the big problem that I'm looking to solve is with respect to how politics is broken in the country. You know, Washington, there is the establishment politics that keeps playing year to year. And Elon Musk had a tweet yesterday. He said, the gerontocracy leadership is completely out of tune with the world, with America. And that is a sad fact in terms of where our elected leaders are. They're responsive more to the lobbyists, more to the special interest group money. And that is clearly apparent with uh, uh, Congresswoman Anna issue. For 28 years of service, you know, I love and respect her a lot, but I wish uh, we could have done something different with respect to responding to the needs of the people or bringing a new vision to the problems of Silicon Valley. So I think big money in politics is completely what is wrong with American politics today. And someone like me who comes with a clean slate, somebody who is well-versed with the, with the ways of the world, coming from the uh, high-tech world, how many career politicians do we have today, Eric? And they are completely out of tune. You saw the uh, Zuckerberg and the Pichai hearing, and we still have spoof videos. We are running a summer internship program, and my intern started sending me the spoof videos I've seen it many times, but it's all new to them. And they are getting very amused with that, that how can a congressional leader ask such questions? Because, you know, I think we have a bunch of technologically illiterate congressional members, and I don't say that. It's one of the congressional members from Silicon Valley who says that. So there are huge problems we need to solve. You know, you have a pandemic that's playing still out. There are problems with the economy. There are problems with healthcare. 
and our elected leaders are playing ball with the lobbyists, you know, and that's not fair for American people. And that's one of the reasons why I'm running, Eric, to solve some of the big challenges. Yeah, definitely. And that's something I really appreciate about your campaign. And I've, I've been looking at uh, some of your messages and your platform, and you're not taking any PAC money, um, which was one big thing that drew me to Tulsi Gabbard's campaign, obviously, in 2020, um, you know, rejecting that that dark money, that dirty money, um, you know, that money that just comes with so many string, so much string uh, and red tape attached to it because you get in there, someone bundled you $100,000, $200,000. Whose call are you going to take first? You're going to take your constituents' call or you're going to take that big fundraiser's call? So how has the fundraising process been for your campaign and what has your strategy been for that? You know, if uh, someone cannot raise money here, they should probably never run for office. I mean, this is still the California gold rush going on here, right? Right. I mean, it's a little impacted right now with COVID-19. I think uh, we are feeling the woes of that. But, uh, you know, I always declare it to people who ask me that, hey, if uh, someone, you know, we have, we should be able to raise a lot of money because I think this uh, area here in Silicon Valley has the highest density of millionaires compared to anywhere else in the world, you know. I mean, that's the nature of what California offers to you. And it purely is all high-tech money. And there are the best of brains who plot here. So it's a, it's a great story still playing out in Silicon Valley. So what we have done is, you know, we have rejected all PAC money, all special interest group money, and we are actively raising money from people, you know, people that know me, that trust me, progressives that find out, and they are making to uh, make that contribution. Now, Congresswoman Anna issue, I will never, ever compete with her on money. She probably has 100 times more money than me, but what we will never compete on is on ethical values and the ability to serve the American people to the best of our abilities and to stand, stand true and tall with the American people on issues that matter to them. You know, with healthcare, for example, I'm running for Medicare for all, Congresswoman uh, Anna Eshu is not. And uh, she gets probably 50% or more from PACs and special interest group. In fact, $1.7 million from Big Pharma, which is uh, number one in the country, bar none. Nobody else, uh, Kevin McCarthy is number two. And uh, Congresswoman Anna Issue has superseded Kevin McCarthy in terms of money from Big Pharma. And that's a big problem. You know? And then secondly, when you look at uh, telecom, she has uh, raised almost $645,000 from the telecom industry. And when it came to the merger between uh, Sprint and AT&T, uh, Sprint and T-Mobile, she was in favor of that particular merger, you know, which didn't favor the American people at all. And when you look at going back to pharma, you know, she has actually increased the price of uh, healthcare by protecting the patent protection of uh, biologic drugs from five years to 12 years. And that's not fair to the American people. You know, we need better leadership. We need our elected leaders to be serving the people and not the lobbyists. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a great story playing out, Eric. We have been able to consistently talk about this messaging and we are getting strong support from the people. In fact, we have raised more money than any other challenger in the history of this particular district. Now, obviously we are far short of an issue, but it's not about money. It's about how you run a campaign and the messaging that you, that you orient towards the people. Yeah, absolutely. So with your, I know out in California, they have rank voting, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. So did you have to go through a primary or are you currently in a primary? Where are you at with that right now? Yes, our primary is just uh, wrapped up March 3rd. We were top two and this is the very first time we have a Democratic Party challenger that has made it past and uh, made it past the primary uh, in this particular election. So in 28 years. I wow, would say. congratulations on that. That's, that's, uh, that's impressive. <laughs> Thank you. So are you 
coalition building and, and trying to go now, how many other candidates were in that race with you and her um, that didn't make the cut? There were totally five, total five. And uh, we were pretty confident right from the get go because out of the five, there was really one candidate that was campaigning and going and knocking on doors and running social media ads, talking about our campaign policies and ideas and vision. So we were very, quite confident that we would make the top two. Excellent. Now, are you going to reach out to the other ones who are running or have you talked to any of them, you know, the people who are supporting them to say, let's team up and coalesce around my campaign to get rid of the incumbent? Yes. You know, we have reached out to them and we haven't heard back from them, but we keep trying. Now, were they uh, other Democrats or um, obviously? So if it was, yeah, if it was a primary, they were other Democrats. Well, actually, uh, no, because or they could have been Republicans the, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, you know, so we coding. had two Republicans and uh, we had one Libertarian. So. Okay, Libertarian. So have, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. I, I, you know, I'd like to see us try that in other states. You know, here in New Hampshire, it certainly would be interesting to do that because, um, you know, you would, I think you would offer a, a greater slate of candidates, more diversity of candidates and ideas and stuff like that, and, you know, level the playing field a little bit. And, um, you know, obviously... Yes, I, I think, Eric, uh, just to make a comment on that, you know, I think... You know, many of our incumbents across the country, they sort of go to sleep uh, on the job. Right. And when you look at Silicon Valley high tech, you know, if you go to sleep on the job, it doesn't take more than three months for people to find out. And you are given the boot, you know, I mean, this is uh, the expectations are pretty high. And to some extent, I feel, Eric, that the bar has been set very low with our elected leaders. You know, I mean, you'll go across, uh, look at other countries of the world. You know, it takes very little. Incumbency has no advantage. And I believe the numbers here in America is like 97% of the people get elected. So how does this favor the top two system of California? You know, somebody like me uh, has basically called out some of uh, what is wrong with the politics of Congresswoman Anna issue. For example, you know, they call her the invisible politician because she doesn't have town hall meetings. And some of the town hall meetings that she runs is orchestrated with the teleconference calls where if you ask a controversial question, you will never be, uh, you will never have a chance to actually put that question forth. So it's very orchestrated. And uh, there has, hasn't been a whole lot of town hall, face-to-face town hall meetings that were happening. And last year, when we announced a run, Congresswoman Anna, she started having these town hall meetings and it led to some pretty, uh, you know, some sort of very candid conversations. And, and one time a 16-year-old uh, uh, high school student in Palo Alto was asking Congresswoman Anishu, Anishu, how come, Congresswoman, how come you take all this money from Big Pharma and uh, how come you pass this type of legislation? And this is, uh, this is what, what it creates. You know, when you have someone like me challenging an incumbent, you know, they are likely to respond to that and then it leads to good conversations and hopefully it tends to reset some of the wrong, incorrect policies, you know. And I think it's very healthy for our country. Oh, absolutely. Well, they're then forced to come down from their tower and uh, come amongst the commoners, the voters, the constituents, the taxpayers, the people who are just, you know, day to day living their lives in the district, uh, you know, hoping that they're, you know, the, the candidate or the, the person in charge is hoping they're not paying attention. So that's great about your candidacy that it's some activism is spurring up from it and some grassroots um, efforts and energy. So that's awesome, man. I love to hear that. So um, what would you say are your top three issues um, in this campaign? and have inspired you to run? So, you know, let's take the first one, which is uh, COVID-19. You know, I think it has exposed a lot of different challenges in America in terms of our pandemic, pandemic preparedness. And uh, so that's uh, definitely a very, very important agenda for me in terms of how we can be better prepared. 
because we are looking at bio warfares or future pandemics and we we cannot just uh, drop american economy down to its knees we need to be better prepared and uh, we we did not have simple things like masks and and swabs and this is a travesty you know america did not perform to the level of like third world countries of the world you know so i think that's uh, something that we need to address for sure then when you look at the supply chain system that we have here it's a national defense issue because we need stuff for healthcare workers or perhaps we need for defense and we are left exposed with uh, you know how the manufacturing has shifted from the country and uh, and to, and to some extent you know we are exposed to china when you look at uh, the pharmaceutical drugs i would say 80 90% of the drugs are manufactured in china perhaps more and then 80% of the raw material that is used to manufacture drugs in this country comes from china so we are quite exposed and we need to bolster that so we need to bring some manufacturing back into a country and make things better then you look at the challenges of covid-19 this is the time not to be shy not to be risk averse we but we have to be bold you know we have to make some bold choices which means investment in infrastructure and which uh, not only talks about uh, the manufacturing aspect of it but also when it comes to transportation or housing or just building our better infrastructure for america because you know the last time we had a major invest in investment was probably when we build the freeway system and after that we haven't quite done anything you know we are we are lagging the rest of the country rest of the world when it comes to infrastructure transportation you know there is huge investments happening all across the world and america is not quite doing it and we are still burning up a lot of fuel with our with our auto economy you know i think we need to do a lot better with that you know so those are some of the highlights finally when it comes to healthcare the healthcare is probably the biggest challenge when i hear uh alex azar you know he talked about the vaccination and how some of the folks may not be able to afford the vaccination because it won't not be available for free you know what are we talking about which means like oh some of the folks will keep passing the coronavirus amongst themselves while the rest of the population would have the vaccination you know we need to build out a better healthcare system we need to look at medicare for all and i think uh, it has uh, the 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 issues of covid-19 has basically changed has reset the thinking a lot of people in silicon valley people would say rishi don't ever take my private option away from me but now we have what 35 million people in this country that do not have uh, actually 43 million was the data i saw will may not have health insurance and in silicon valley a lot of husbands and wives have both lost their health insurance because they have lost their jobs how do you deal with that you need to have a social net you need to have a social net and we need to define a better future for every american so these are tough choices we need to make now and so our work is cut off for us uh, eric and in terms of when we look at our aging elected leaders this is the time we need to shift that because i don't think so they'll be able to have the energy or even the vision because it's all like business as usual for them this needs this is a new world with new demands so i can clearly see that there is going to be a shift with respect to elected leaders that could that will come into office in november I recently saw a tweet by one of the venture capital investors, and what he said was, it took a pandemic and unrest and civil unrest for for people to realize how important it is to elect the right kind of elected leaders in this country because it could be a matter of life and death. And I couldn't have said it better. You know, I think these this these are things that need to be addressed, and obviously we are ready for it. We have been running a great campaign for the last 16 months, and we know we're going to win this in November, November 3rd, 2020. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you said it right there. It's gotten so bad for so many people and 
we were caught flat-footed with this pandemic. You know, whether whether it was from a lab. I mean, where where do you think it originated? The the origins of it came from. How do you think it it started? You know, I think uh, there is a lot of uh, rumors floating around. You know, whether it was orchestrated or not, but uh, it seemed to me that the origin is uh, Wuhan, and then the the fine print is where we sort of like fall out in terms of what exactly happened. And uh, to some extent, there is a lot of conspiracy theories floating around. I've seen all, all of that. But I think my, my viewpoint is America needs to do a better job of guarding ourselves. And so let's, let's uh, I'm going to peel this slightly, you know. So here is what we need to do, right? You look at uh, how we basically said, let's shut down the economy. Let's all stay at home, right? But if we had, let's say, a, a good healthcare system, President Obama rolled out the the electronic medical record uh, system. And it, it kind of didn't quite move forward as we expected it to. But if we rolled out a safe, secure electronic medical uh, record system that would consolidate the medical records of American citizens, and if you are able to analyze this with uh, healthcare analytics, you know, a piece of software with AI machine learning, and we are able to identify vulnerable, vulnerable segments of our population. So let's say we identify the 20% that are likely at risk we say, okay, you guys, you should stay at home and the rest of the folks can go out and about. So this will be very, very critical and important for us to succeed in case of a bio-warfare exam, for example, right? So I think we need to do a little bit of a better job based upon this learning. And I hope our elected leaders have the, have the foresight to start working in these areas. You know, we really need to put a plan together. And I think right now I still see a lot of infighting going on in DC in terms of how we are looking at the stimulus packages or, you know, I mean, the top 1% got that money. I mean, come on, how right. can things go wrong like this? There are people here in Silicon Valley who are struggling. They don't even know how to apply for a loan. I mean, how, how can a government fail where they're not able to provide people who need the money, money into their hands, because that was the fundamental logic of the stimulus package. Things are not quite working very well. Yeah, absolutely. And I was a big proponent and I am and I will be going forward. Um, and I hope you will be of UBI for everybody who needs it. I mean, it's just incredible that these corporations got trillions in money. Um, industries like the, the cruise ship industry, I don't think we should have given them a dime. I'd like to see that fail. Personally, I think the cru cruise ships are horrible, nasty cesspits. <laughs> but I mean, for just individual Joe America, I mean, two grand, even something like two grand a month would have been a game changer during this whole pandemic. So Andrew Yang talked a lot about UBI and uh, Tulsi has been very supportive of it in Congress. So if you got to Congress, would you be a uh, direct supporter of UBI for America? You know, Andrew Yang, he was here in Cupertino and we five of us sat down with a couple of elected leaders from Cupertino and we had a pretty good conversation. So that was the very first time way back, you know, before the world knew of Andrew Yang and I got introduced to his UBI. And frankly, Eric, I was a little concerned. You know, I didn't know if it would work out. But now having seen the challenges of uh, coronavirus, it is so apparent that we need a safety net mm -hmm. because there are people that will die of hunger in a situation like this. So we definitely need to consider, you know, like Bernie Sanders, he was talking about providing uh, like, I think $2,000 a month for like a few years, right? I mean, we, and, and this is what is the reality today because I don't think so economy is going to re recover very quickly. But then when you, let's go back to what happened uh, with the stimulus package, right, Eric? So the moment it was announced, uh, well, when, when the pandemic started happening, we said lockdown. And then the word got out that, yes, there will be bailout. You know what happened? There were people in suits that flew in from all parts of the country 
to DC and check themselves into hotel rooms. Our friendly lobbyists, the neighborhood lobbyists, they were all there with their begging bowl, making sure <laughs> that the industry concerns would be met. Concerns would be met, right? And this is how you know the the big companies, the talk with the one person, they all got paid out. And our 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 mom and pop shops, they were left in the lurch. Very sad, very sad that this is happening in America. You know. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I mean, here in New Hampshire, I just read today about a diner that I've loved going to that was in my hometown. It's going to close forever now. They decided today they just they don't have the resources and the pandemic just wiped them out. They weren't able to sustain. So really what we see in our Congress is, you know, majority of them are just puppets for corporations and corporate interests and big money and special interests. So, you know, we really need to boost campaigns like yours and someone who will really go in there and champion the people and fight for the people. And yeah, the lot lobbyists are just, it's, I don't know how those people, a lot of those people live with themselves doing what they do, you know, essentially they're just, uh, you know, prostitutes for big corporations and, and special interests and the Pentagon and, you know, X, Y, and Z industries. So that's definitely a culture you know, of corruption in Washington that is just so deeply ingrained and embedded. So what would you do on your end to fight against that were you to get this seat in Congress? Oh, it's uh, pretty simple, you know, stand by your principles. And I'll tell you the story, uh, a very uh, a new congressional elected leader in 2018, the very first day in DC, and a very a veteran, uh, veteran uh, senator from the Congress from the same party, you know, takes this uh, newly elected congressional leader to a lunch meeting. And that lunch meeting is filled with lobbyists, you know. And uh, so essentially that culture has been transferred from generation to generation. And this is where we need to have a lot more progressives elected, people who are there to represent the interests of the people. And if you look at my track record in Saratoga, you know, we were reelected to the Saratoga City Council with the most votes in the election history because people but lived here for like 30, 40 years. I mean, they initially looked at me like, who's this guy, you know, why is he running for office? And then they saw the work that we did and I got endorsement statements like, hey, Rishi, you know, we have never seen a council member like you ever in my 50 years of Saratoga because we are there solving problems. We are standing fearlessly to help the people out. And this is what American people need in this country. They need ethical uh, leaders that operate with integrity that are out there solving problems. And this is what I pledge to do. I'll give you an example, Eric. You know, Right now, what we have done is, uh, as soon as the pandemic happened, we basically shut down our campaign. Uh, even though the, the week after March 3rd, we were going door to door to get some feedback. We said, okay, this is not the time. Let's shut it down. And what we did was, we started calling our seniors. We launched a neighborhood pandemic preparedness team. And there are volunteers in pretty much every city of our congressional district. And we are reaching out to our seniors to say, how can we help? Can, I, can we get you medication? Can we get you groceries? Can we get you anything, right? And we have called so far, by this week, we would have called like 50, 60,000 seniors. Wow. You know, it, it's something that we have been very passionate about and we have helped thousands. You know, We have built out masks and PPE to address the needs of people. So what I tell people is when I get elected, you know, this is what we'll do in a crisis. I won't be having town hall meetings, just or rather I will likely have town hall meetings, but what I will likely have also beyond that is calling each of the residents of our district, 740,000 a population. I would like to reach out to each family and say, how can we help? So we'll build out a volunteer team and make sure we are there accessible and reachable. In fact, this is what we have done in Saratoga, in my city. You know, when I'm top of mind, when people have an issue and people think of something, they reach out to me because I'm constantly out there trying to see how can I help, having like breakfast meetings every Saturday to see 
How can I be more responsive to people? I would love, like to get the feedback. So that's the role of an elected leader. You know, you need to have your door open and you have to make it easy for people to get the help that they need because we are there serving the people and not the other way around. I think what happens with the politics is sometimes our elected leaders forget and they feel that the people report to them, you know, and it doesn't work like quite like that. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So you obviously, um, with your team and with your background in tech, put together some kind of infrastructure. How did you actually reach out? How, how have you actually been able on a tech end to connect with 60,000 seniors? Because a lot of them don't have cell phones. They have landlines. They don't do email, that sort of thing. So how, how did you do that? Yeah, so we adopt all sorts of approaches. I call it multiple channels of engagement. And, uh, you know, some of our seniors live off the grid. They are not on social media. They're not in emails. So you have to go to their doors. And we have done that too. You know, we have uh, our volunteer teams in some neighborhoods. They printed out flyers and they knew exactly where the seniors live. And they would go drop off a flyer at the door, basically with some information and saying that, hey, if you need to reach me, you can call me at this number. We don't knock on doors because this is, the world of the coronavirus. Yeah. We, we also made phone calls. We sent out emails. There are social media ads playing. So we try to see how we can engage with our people from multiple channels. And one of the one of the most effective ways was, I think a lot of seniors still use the landlines. So we are calling, leaving voicemail. They, they may not pick up, but at least, and, and we have gotten so many, I call them love letters back. You know, <laughs> people are people are like, hey, Rishi, I really, like some, sometimes the daughter uh, at home is like replying back, I really like that your team reached out to my father. You know, he's out here alone. And I appreciate the fact that you, your team reached out wanting to help. It means a lot to us, you know. I think this is how we build a community together, you know, by being there for each other. When we first launched it, we said, this is the time neighbors can help neighbors. Let's launch this initiative. And it, it caught fire because in the first week, we already got like a few hundred because everybody was feeling the angst. And Americans have great hearts because we have giving hearts. And then they said, okay, we have a crisis. What can we do? Nobody wants to brood about their own challenges. You know, what we said was, let's figure out who we can help. And that's how this program became effective. You know? Wow, that's awesome. That's, uh, so was there any kind of feedback if, uh, from the people about any, you know, any outreach from Congresswoman Nishu's office or her people? Or really, was there just a vacuum there and your leadership and your people kind of filled it? Well, you know, I think I've, uh, I see that uh, there are email messages coming out from Congressman Eshu in terms of bills and things like that, that they are currently working on. And then I also see uh, town hall meetings uh, that were conducted and very similar, I think. Uh, obviously, we're not doing face-to-face. -face, so those teleconference calls were done. So this is business as usual for, for Congressman Anna Eshu. But this is the time I think we need to do a lot more. Though I, I've heard from some folks that her website has been quite neatly structured with respect to what the programs are and how could we apply and things like that. But I think this, in a time of crisis, we've got to go an extra length. And that's what I've pledged to people that this is what I'm going to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great hustle. So hypothetical, uh, you know, this weekend, you could get a meeting in the White House with Donald Trump. We have an hour with him. What would you talk to him about? What would you ask him? So I think firstly, I would just talk to him about leadership. You know, I think uh, in, a in time of a crisis, leadership needs to inspire people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I never believe in slamming anybody, you know, because I think, uh, you know, when we, when we shoot an arrow out, you know, 10 of them come back to us, you know. So I never like to talk or criticize anybody. I always like to see the strengths of people. And there are some positive things that, uh, that President Donald Trump has done. But there are things that he is not doing very well. And, and 
and there is a chance that uh, chance for improvement you know and if i got a chance to to speak with him i would point out you know how this civil unrest needs to be managed with the people you know i think instead of threats you know we need to figure out a different language perhaps take a leaf from president obama's book in terms of how we want to address that you know because these are very sensitive times and we have to be very sensitive and and i think i i sort of understand where president donald trump comes from you know he's a he's a hardwired new yorker you know i mean he operates in a very very different manner but sometimes you know you got to have a change of style you have to have uh, adopt a tone of uh, empathy you know you have to figure out you know who do you want to bring in so that you listen to the right kind of people to create that type of uh, of that uh, leadership you know which is currently i think there were two crises and uh, fortunately or unfortunately it played out during the time of uh, president donald trump and i don't think so he's really done a great job of handling the covid-19 crisis or even uh, with respect to to you know for example when we stopped the campaign you know we tell people that it's not about the election anymore you know there are people who need help let's go out and help them right so similarly i think we cannot be fixated on an election but we have to figure out how can we help millions and millions of people you know and that should be the agenda that that would be the conversation i would have with president donald trump yeah pretty straightforward how do we solve these problems and uh, empathy is a really big thing and not only does it start at the top but i mean you look at a lot of people in congress and in the senate a lot of them are lacking empathy and like you said about these people who get in there they end up getting in there saying i'm going to serve myself and my interest and no longer becomes about serving their constituents and the people who elected them so that would well, be Eric, part of the problem is that i'm sorry to jump in but uh, part of the problem is uh, we have lots of career politicians who do not know what they will do if they are not in in, in congress or <laughs> yeah. they have no idea because um, you know actually uh, people talk about councilman an issue so i had a town hall meeting in uh, in santa cruz uh, i believe it was uh, in scotts valley and uh, so i'm sitting there and a, a caucasian gentleman comes to me and he says rishi what's your what's your degree what degree do you have and i said well you know i was working on my phd in mechanical engineering but uh, i i was halfway through it but i i have a masters and so he looks at me and he says what degree do you think congressman anna ashu has and uh, i have no idea because you know I, i i i don't look outside i'm just trying to figure out you know how to work with the world and make things better and and help people out and how do you run a campaign all that kind of stuff right i never pay attention so i i had no idea he says well she's got a two years associate degree and uh, and and what he was essentially saying is you know these are the types of leaders we have in congress who are elected and they sort of like surf through because people there is nobody challenging them you know there's hmm. in fact in the party in the democratic party everybody has a herd mentality like oh you know it's like uh, like congressman uh, congressman mike honda you know people would say oh he's great and then uh, Congre- congressman khanna challenged him and he he exposed a lot of things that were not happening and this is what it takes you know and unfortunately in, in our party there are no challengers and then when we look at uh, what happened in 2016 i think uh, bernie sanders got the short end of the stick you know and unfortunately this is playing out again and again and again and it's not going to board very well for the party you know yeah absolutely so now that biden pretty much you know locked up the nomination who do you like to be his vice president well you know i think uh, i'll um, i'm i'm actually thinking of michelle obama <laughs> I've heard that thrown around but I watched her documentary there becoming and she looked pretty damn happy just doing her book tour and not being in the public the public eye anymore at that level. <laughs> so I I think uh you know I uh, the 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 movement 
has sparked a huge angst amongst people and amongst a lot of people in America, you know, and, uh, and if there's a time that, uh, that we need to bring black leaders to the fore, this is the time, you know, I think our, our country really wants to address the oppression of hundreds, hundreds of years. And so I believe uh, with Michelle Obama, that would really strengthen Biden's ticket. Yeah, her name has certainly been thrown out there. And I know he's, he's committed to picking a woman. So we'll have to see who he decides to go with. So I wanted to ask you your view on Julian Assange and whistleblowers talking about government corruption and you know, crimes that our government commits. Do you feel that uh, Julian Assange should be freed from prison and not uh, gone after by the U.S.? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how this might intersect the congressional run here, but here is my quick take, right? I, I may not uh, agree with Assange on every single point, but his First Amendment rights and uh, holding him accountable according to the Court of Justice is probably something that I would like to see, you know. Amer but, but here is my take, right? The security of Americans, of our country, can never, ever be compromised. And I think uh, we have to be very careful in terms of what data we are releasing because at the end of the day, if uh, America is attacked and uh, because of something that got exposed, that would, uh, not, be, that would not be wise, you know. And uh, I, I actually, my take is I, I respect folks more who will ensure the American integrity you know, of our security and all that. You know? So that's, that's where I stand at that. But if you look at Snowden, you know, he, re he reveals something that American people deserve to know. So I, I like that a little bit more, you know. Yeah, so you're maybe a little more sympathetic to Edward Snowden's plight. Yes, correct. Being, being over in Russia. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that argument about security and about things coming out. But I just feel what uh, Snowden and Assange, what Assange revealed with uh, WikiLeaks is, is, is done more than any politician could ever have done. And it's really shown that there are still some good media out there that have the people's interests in mind because just the level of corruption. I mean, just even with Iraq, what happened with Iraq, there was that video called Collateral Murder, which was our troops firing on innocent people in Iraq um, who just turned out to be journalists. They weren't uh, insurgents or they weren't enemy combatants. So without that coming out, I, none of us w would have ever have known about it. And then that wouldn't inspire people to try and take corrective measures to avoid policy like that, that has us ending up in Iraq. So, you know, foreign policy is, is one of my big interests. And, and it was obviously one of the reasons I supported Tulsi's campaign because her background, in my opinion, was, you know, one of the best out of all the candidates running, having served in Iraq and, and being, you know, the first female combat veteran to run for president. Um, you know, her service on the, the, the um, Armed Services Committee and, and the just everything she's done in Congress. So what do you think America's role should be around the world? Should we have 800 bases around the world? Should we close some of those down? What's, what's your take on that? You know, I think we have to forge a new path of peace. And uh, so, so when you look at uh, England, you know, back in those days, they went about invading countries and they put up camps and shops everywhere. And it was very disruptive to the world. In fact, some parts of the world they still blame the British for all the problems, uh, political problems that continue to persist. And so I think America needs to get away from that, you know, because we have to, I think that even with COVID-19, you know, it's sort of like reminding us, it's a reality check happening within us, within our hearts in terms of what we need to reset and how we need to think about, bring some pragmatic thinking to the fore. 
So here is what America needs to do. You know, I think if you look at the last 20 years, uh, uh, you know, we have spent about $5.9 trillion on all these wars. We have killed about half a million people directly, indirectly, you know. And I always feel, I always say this, that karma will come around. You know, I think you have to be careful what you do. And so we need to create economic prosperity across the world. You know, I mean, that's the warfare, the economic prosperity warfare that America needs to unleash upon the world, create opportunities instead of trying to subvert regimes, regimes and, and take over. And uh, it's not very healthy because, you know, when you look at what played out in Afghanistan, how tables were turned, how American weapons were later pointed at us, you know, this is not something we should really try to do. And, uh, you know, let things uh, persist and create wealth and prosperity and education and create a better society across every part of the world. And this is the contribution that I would like to see America make. Yeah, definitely. And, and I feel since 9-11, we have spent, I think it's well over 10 trillion, if you add everything up um, in these wars, and we have killed so many innocent people. And not only that, you know, people talk about taking care of our veterans and PTSD and the fallout that our young men and women deal with and endure after these wars. I don't think a lot of thought goes into that before Congress votes on these things, because we certainly saw the buildup to Iraq and there was virtually no dissenting voices in Congress. There was a few. I mean, my friend Dennis Kucinich was one of the big speak, uh, people in the House who were speaking against it. There was a couple of senators. There was uh, Russ Feingold, certainly. And um, obviously on the Republican side, there was Ron Paul in the House, you know, civil libertarian against foreign entanglements. So it sounds like if you get to Congress, you'll kind of be a free thinker and you'll be kind of independent of that pressure. Yes. And, and this is what I tell people too, you know, and people are like, you need to have allies. And what I tell them is, yes, I will have allies because we'll create economic prosperity for everybody here in the United States. How do you do that? So I talk about collaborating with the other congressional leaders. And, uh, you know, we have something going, which is uh, pretty amazing here with the economy, with jobs, with uh, high tech innovation. And what we should do is we should take this and see different parts of the country. And if you are able to help out different parts of the country like Montana or West Virginia or Louisiana or, or Pennsylvania, and you spark an innovation hub out there in many of these areas, you know, you are creating an opportunity for education, for jobs, then they naturally become your allies. You know? And that's how we will sort of, it's not about going left, not about going right. It's about going forward and helping the people out. And, and basically, this is what I've done with elected leaders here as well. You know, I mean, we have collaborated well. We are solving some of the challenges. I reach out to them actively. For example, we challenged a water utility company that was increasing their water rates. In a drought, their profits went from $22 million to $52 million in a drought. And so we started pushing back and we have rejected seven water rates. And I would talk to the mayor of Cupertino. I would talk to the mayor of Milpitas. I would talk to everybody because this is how you sort of bring, bring people together have a common understanding, and then you can collaborate and make things better, you know, and that's what we'll do in Congress. You know, it's not about, about uh, playing the establishment game. I know they'll make it very difficult, but we are there for the people. And as long as we do all the right things for the people, I can sleep well at night, Eric. I have no issues in sleeping well because my conscience is very clear. Absolutely. So where are you on the war on drugs and legalizing marijuana and decriminalizing hard drugs? So, you know, I think uh, I'm in favor of legalizing marijuana. So, you see so many who are still jailed uh, due to mar marijuana offenses. California has already done it, so why not the rest? And with respect to you know, the drug reform, we have to focus on the rehabilitation. 
instead of incarceration. You know, I think that's that's a huge thing that will make a big difference for America. I mean, we we have just increased the uh, the toll upon prisons. You know, America America tends to spend more and more money on prisoners, and the the data here is in California. We spend about at least fifty thousand dollars per prisoner versus like thirty thousand dollars per student here in California. And I think we need to change that. You know, I mean, we need to spend a lot more on education than on prisons. So there are some real, our work is cut out for us, Eric. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think this is at the heart of a lot of the decimation of the black communities around our country yeah. is this war on drugs. And I just made this simple point to my friend the other day when talking about how a lot of families, I know my family and, and a lot of other people had their grandfather, had their father, they were never incarcerated, where would not, that might not be the case for a black family somewhere in America where a grandfather or a father was locked up for having a bag of weed and given some draconian 10, 15 year sentence. So that's, you know, that's part of the problem. And that's definitely uh, one of the big issues. And then not only that is, is how much money the prison industry makes. And we talked about lobbyists earlier. They send their lobbyists to Washington. And uh, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. The people who cook for the prisons, the people who build them, the people who maintain them. Uh, the, just so many different things involved with that. So um, that's certainly a, a, big, a big problem facing reforms. And I think if we can overcome a lot of that or at least show some leadership on it, we can move the ball in the right direction. So here is the thing, Eric, right? If we take, took our prisoners and we put them back to work in the economy, we would save like billions of dollars a year because now they are paying taxes and they are productive citizens and they are not going to be in trouble. And here is a prime example, right? I went to UConn, uh, University of Connecticut for my mechanical engineering. And we had this guy, Karan Butler, you know, he, he, was, he was in the prison and uh, he was in prison when he was like, I don't know, as a juvenile, I think, you know. And then one fine day it clicked into his head that he will be in the prison systems and one day he might be shot even if he continued and persisted with the lifestyle he had. You know, he was playing basketball, he was good at it. And eventually he ended up as a player at UConn, he ended up in the NBA and he's written a book about it, right? And this is the opportunity we need to provide to everybody, you know, get them a way out of the system, you know, provide them the livelihood they, that they need, you know, having vocational education and providing some of our prisoners the opportunity to learn something that they are, they are good at you know, I think these are things that we need to establish as reform programs for, for the prison systems. You know, I mean, this is how we can make it better. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's that, that's definitely one, one way we can look at it. People who have been in the system and then they can take their own experiences and stuff from their background and their life and, and put it towards something productive and inspiring other people to go in another direction. So I really think at this moment, what we, the upheaval we have going on in America, we do have an opportunity to, to really talk about some of these progressive ideas and then, you know, see them put into action across the country. Yep. For sure. One more thing though on the, on the drugs, you know, I, I think uh, not too much of a tangent, tangential shift, but when you look at the opioid crisis that played out, uh, Eric, in America, you know, 700,000 deaths uh, over 20 years. And, uh, you know, many of our elected leaders were not even cognizant that something like this was happening, or perhaps they were, but, uh, you know, they were not willing to do anything. You need to have the appetite to do something. And when big pharma greed is playing out and you are responsive to them, it's very hard. And this is a travesty that played out in America. And that this is you know, something that I would probably never have tolerated. You know, if I was, if I was leading the House Health Subcommittee on Healthcare, I would like to do hearings on that, talk about it and see how we can fix it once and for all. And I believe Congresswoman Anna Eshoo fell short of that. You know, she should have done that. And our elected leaders need to be a lot more engaged with the problems of our country 
instead of uh, doing what they are doing today, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And here in my small state in New Hampshire, we've been decimated by the opioid crisis. I've personally had members of my graduating class who have died from overdosing on opioids. And um, I actually just met with um, the mother of a, a girl I grew up with who I you know, knew for years and she was in my class and she died, I think it was last year. And uh, one part of our conversation, I asked her if she'd ever heard of the Portuguese model of harm reduction to deal with uh, opioids and heroin and hard drugs and she hadn't heard of it. So I don't know if, if are you familiar with the Portuguese model? No. So essentially in, in Portugal, they decriminalized heroin and they set up um, safe sites and needle exchanges for people who were addicted to it. And they legitimately treated it as a public health issue, as, a, as an addiction, as a, as a health issue, not a criminal issue. So they moved it away from the courts and being a criminalized act to being something where this human being has an addiction and we can help rehab them and, and, and take a harm reduction strategy where we'll take steps to slowly but surely get them off the hard drugs. You know, keep them, not, don't put them in a cage because I don't think you can rehab a human being by throwing them in a cage. That doesn't work. So Portugal really has led the led the world on that and they, they've shown some pretty good results over the last 20 years. So if you're looking to get more info on that, I definitely suggest uh, checking that out. And that could be something that states can, we can try on a state level. It doesn't have to be a federal thing, but you know, we could have some cooperation with the fed and I'd like to see some states, you know, move in that direction. And then I've certainly advocated it to leaders and lawmakers here in my state of New Hampshire. You know, Eric, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I think uh, we are America, we seemingly might know it all, but it's absolutely okay to take a leaf out of other countries. You know, what has worked? Why try to recreate the wheel, which is what we always talk about in the world of tech, right? Don't mm -hmm. recreate it. You know, let's figure out, you know, what we can leverage, what we have. So there are best practices that have been very effective across the different world, you know. And I think we can do a lot more, a better job of pulling those things. For example, GDPR, the, the general data protection uh, from, uh, from Great Britain, you know, I think it has uh, helped with the people's privacies by ensuring that companies will protect that data. America hasn't done that. You know, I mean, it's, uh, and, and, you know, when my data would be stolen from a doctor's office, I would get a standard form letter that, hey, your data was lost. And that's not fair for Americans. You know, I think this is where elected leaders need to step up. You know, we need to be innovative. We need to bring that innovative, creative spirit of addressing the needs of the American people. And whatever has happened here in Silicon Valley, Eric, has been because the best of minds, the best of brains flock here. They're very uh, driven and they are actually impacting the problems, solving problems, making it better for the people and they're making the big bucks. But this mm. is what Americanism is all about. You know, we have to bring that skill to the fore and this is what elected leaders should do as well. You know, be out there solving problems, not create like BS bills that, you know, when I look at some of the bills that I see that come to my thing, what problem are you solving? You know, what problem are you trying to solve with these types of bills? You know, I mean, they are, really there because they want to put their name on print. Okay, I did a bill. But, you know, I think mm. when you look at, for example, what are the challenges here? You know, we have a challenge with the housing and transportation. You know, we have a challenge with the burglaries. You know, we have a challenge with water because we are having a drought and there is no invest, uh, no infrastructure planning on that. You know, our elected leaders should be stepping up. How many elected leaders have done anything for burglaries, right? When I started doing that in my city of Saratoga, you know, our burglaries for a population of for 12,000 households we had about 59 burglaries a year. It went to 130. But, you know, one burglary is one too many and people were getting very anxious about that. So I started having neighborhood meetings and I was told, Rishi, you'll drop the price of real estate in Saratoga by having these neighborhood meetings by talking about burglaries. I'm like, look, there's a problem I need to solve. 
I better get to work and do it, you know, and this is the, the work ethics that our politicians need, you know, I mean, any problem is our problem and we have to go out and address it. You know, in fact, people have told me, Rishi, will you work on the burglaries when you get elected to Congress? I'm like, of course, why not? Because it's a big problem that is affecting neighborhoods. You know, you look at affluent communities, Los Altos, Atherton, or Porto Lavalli, Woodside, or Palo Alto, every community is experiencing burglaries here in California. And does that mean it's not a congressional problem? Yes, I'll be putting my work together to see how we can make the, reduce the burglaries in every city, just like we have done that in, in, in my city, right? So this is how elected leaders should be stepping up and solving the big, big challenges of the local community and also figure out you know, how we can help uh, make Americans a lot more successful. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you think Gavin Newsom's doing out there? Well, I, I think it's in the, still in the very early stages. Uh, I believe he's done a good job with the COVID-19. And, uh, you know, he, he's obviously a good leader. You know, he inspires. He, he gets his messaging right. And, uh, you know, he's, he's so far, I think he's on point in terms of uh, what needs to be done. So, yeah, he seems pretty popular out there. Is he, is he pretty, pretty popular in your neck of the woods? Well, you know, I think off and on, I think uh, there, there, are, there is controversy always when you are at that level. Right. So it's not like it's all perfect. But, you know, I think uh, overall, I would give him a good grade, you know. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, Newsom and then is uh, Carcetti or Carcetti, you pronounce it, Carcetti? Yeah, Garcetti, yeah. Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., they have national ambitions. I mean, he was talking about coming out here to New Hampshire last time around. He didn't end up running, but uh, I don't think uh, those those – those guys are done with uh, just at California. I think they definitely have national ambitions. In, in fact, here is, here is my take, right? So I think uh, in 2024, it'll be Gavin Newsom. Yeah, you think he's going to be the nominee and run and, and go for uh, it? Well, you know, I think he'll make a run for it. You know? yeah. and I, he's got that charisma, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, he's, he's got, got the hair him. too. Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> the thing is, I've seen him talk and uh, he never has any notes. He remembers facts. He's connecting with the audience. You know, I mean, he's one of the best speakers I've seen, you know, so I see him doing quite well in that regard. Yeah, definitely. Well, he comes out here in New Hampshire. I'll be sure to, to be out here and greet him and definitely want to talk to him and interview him. So Rishi, I know we've talked a lot about politics here, but I don't know a lot about you personally. I mean, tell me about like your hobbies. Uh, if you're a drinker, what's your favorite beer? Uh, you know, how, how do you relax when you're not in the city council world and you're not stopping the burglaries and helping your constituents. Um, you know, tell me, tell me about yourself. What do you like to do? So I'm, I'm a singer and a dancer, you know? <laughs> oh, nice. All right. So uh, my wife and I, we, we basically do this routine where we sing a song and, and then midway through the song, we drop the mic and the song continues. The, 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 the track continues and then we start dancing to the song, you know, and this is uh, what we have done here in our city of Saratoga. It's a pretty interesting story because uh, we are a very small town here and uh, we have a very small downtown and nobody happens to, it's like a secret. Even the people of our city don't go to the downtown. They prefer going to like Sunnyvale or Palo Alto or Mountain View. So I said, let's, uh, let's help the businesses out. So I've never sung in my life or danced or anything like that. You know, I said, we had a nice coffee shop with a stage at the back and uh, really nice acoustics. And I said, you know, why don't we launch a karaoke event here and make it fun for our people to meet up and get to know each other and then help the businesses out. You know, they can come do shopping or, or have their dinner. So that started. And, uh, and, 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 and that led to actually my, my political run here. And the fact I'm running for Congress, I attribute to that. If I hadn't really? done that, I wouldn't be here running for Congress, which is a pretty bizarre oh. story. 
but some of the press over here they know it and one time i was i was standing there ready to be interviewed and this uh, this gal comes to me and says rishi you are the karaoke guy right <laughs> <laughs> nice right so so karaoke and singing and dancing yeah my brother's in a band here he's in a pretty popular band in our neck of the woods he plays drums um and uh, we both do comedy i do stand-up comedy and impressions oh, nice. yeah i've been all, all over the country you know i do uh, political impressions um you know the one i'm known for the most is donald trump I've, I've gotten all kinds of cool all kinds of cool gigs and been on tv i was on uh, uh german tv actually deutschfell hired me to film a bunch of stuff for the convention um nice. and so this this show that we do politics and pints is actually sponsored by a brewery here in town called post and beam brewing so we helped turn post and being brewing into a destination for all the presidential candidates to come. So Andrew Yang was there. We had Tulsi there. We had Beto O'Rourke. Um, we had Joe Sestak. We had Bill Weld. Um, all kinds of people came and, you know, the press came and really helped turn the place into a destination. And New Hampshire is a small state. So that was a great thing for business. And, um, you know, like you said, if you can bring people together and make them aware of the amazing businesses in their neck of the woods and, and their communities, it can really help stimulate the local economy and just build a sense of purpose and community. So I'm definitely all about that. So are, are you a beer drinker? Do you like beer or are you not, not into alcohol? You know, uh, it's, it's very interesting, Eric, because um, I go to parties and uh, I, would, I would have a good time at the parties. And, uh, and you know, a buddy of mine, and, and this is like, it has a, it ha it's a recurring story. Like this buddy of mine will meet up and uh, he'll say, Rishi, you don't drink? I al always thought you were drunk at parties, you know, <laughs> because I'm drunk on life. I'm drunk on life. And yeah, so my yeah. people, people have been asking me for like, like the last 10 years, 15 years, Rishi, where do you find the time? Where do you find the energy and when do you sleep? Because I'm always like a little hyper energy, you know, so, and I'm constantly doing stuff with my community. For example, something that I do, that is very near and dear to me is the youth empowerment, you know. So we run like a Lego robotics boot camp, we run entrepreneurship boot camp, and we teamed up with the mayor of uh, San Jose, Sam Licardo, and we actually ran it in the in the the most disadvantaged parts of San Jose to provide these students the understanding to create like a perspective of what exactly is a high-tech economy, how can you roll out startups and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we have been doing this for many, many years. And it kind of when I do this stuff, when you're out there giving to the world. I realized that it made me much more happy. I was working for IBM in those days. And, uh, you know, I would also feel that, Eric, something is missing in my life. You know, there should be something more I should be doing compared to just working for IBM. And when I discovered my path of community service, I realized that the happiness sparked inside me. And that's so apparent to people when they meet me like, Rishi, what do you eat or what do you drink that you're so sort of bubbly and happy? But you, when you, I say, Eric, that when you're out there giving to the world, it is so much fun than receiving, you know, receiving is okay, but when you give, it makes you a lot more happy, you know, and that, that's my calling in life. You know, that's the only reason why I'm running for Congress because my objective is to help a million people of Silicon Valley go out there and do some good work, you know. Absolutely. There really is no better feeling. And I feel you on that. For me, when I'm entertaining a crowd, my last gig was uh, in February before all this virus business. And I performed for a half hour in front of a crowd of 700 people. And to get, you know how it is when you're in front of a crowd, but to get laughter out of them and kind of have them going along with you, um, to me, that that's the biggest reward. Obviously, I like being paid for that. We all need money to pay our bills. But um, that I think that comes second to just the feeling I get from making people laugh and, and, and just seeing them light up with laughter because everyone works hard all week and you want to, 
relax and decompress after a long week. So I think that's one of the great things, um, you know, comedians, singers, dancers, um, entertainers, uh, you know, the role they can play in our society. And um, I, I hope that we can put more emphasis on that. Our leadership in Congress can put more emphasis on it. And I mean, how we have an entertainer in the White House. We have the reality TV, you know, you, a lot of people call him a clown, just a reality TV carnival barker. So it, it, entertainment and politics kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, we, we get a kick out of, uh, I, have a, I have a buddy who keeps forwarding me like four paws of, uh, of presidential candidate Joe Biden. And we get a good oh. laugh out of that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's going to beat Joe Biden, okay? It's just like, oh, yeah. He's, he's I'm, running, a, I'm running for U.S. Senator. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's Joe Biden. I'm running for U.S. Senate. Give me a look over. If you don't like me, vote for the other guy. <laughs> and then Trump is just like sleepy Joe Biden. He's very low energy, Rishi. He's very low energy like Jeb Bush. Just like Jeb. Low energy Jeb. <laughs> One of my friends, uh, he's a big Trump supporter, but uh, he really wants uh, Biden to win because he's like, I'll have so much fun watching him on TV every night in his stand up. It's true. And a lot of people said that about Trump in 2016. It'll just be so much fun. I don't even necessarily agree with him, but he'll be fun. But uh, I think for a lot of people, the fun kind of ended in these last couple of weeks with how he responded to the, the riots and the, the uprising. And I just, for me, man, tear gassing your own people to go do a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. is just like that, that like dictators do that kind of stuff, you know? So that, that was, that was appalling in my opinion. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, president Trump, uh, he, he definitely needs the perspectives the problem is when you're running a business like this for, for decades, you know, you, you sort of don't take advice very well, you know, and that's mm. part of the problem that we have, you know. Yeah, well, he's only had yes men around him his whole life, right? No one's ever said no to him or said, no, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that. So that, that doesn't really translate too well when you're trying to be a president of a country, I don't think, or even a member of Congress. So you get elected to Congress, what kind of staff are you going to have around you and how are you going to pick who's going to be on your staff? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I've, you know, I think uh, I really believe in ethical integrity. And uh, so that's the type of people I would like to put together. People who really believe in the value of serving. And so the interviews would be really focused around this, you know, in terms of what is your aspiration in life? You know, why are you in the world of public service? Why are, why are you in this world? And uh, that would be sort of telling me a story about what, how they would stand up for the people. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I already can see my district office, how, how responsive we would be to the people, you know, we would have, uh, have all these case management experts, it would, it would all be driven by making sure that people get the help they need. And it doesn't mean that, oh, this is not part of my domain, we can't help them. No, you have to mm -hmm. find out help that you can get, which is perhaps aligning with nonprofits or any other groups or possibly know, different organizations to make sure that our people will get the help. You know, this, this is really what we are there for and we have to do a good job of it, you know. Yeah, 100%. I'm with you on that. Well, I'll give you the last word here, Rishi. Where can people find you and, um, you know, make your final pitch to the voters out in your district and anyone who could support you, whether they're sending you a donation or sharing your message. Uh, tell us how we can help you and where to find you. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, if somebody watched the interview till here, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, you know, I'm unlike any politician you will ever see. 
And uh, we are pretty sure that uh, we are going to be a little disruptive in Washington when we get there next year. And, uh, and our intention is to solve a lot of problems, you know, standing fearlessly for the people. You can throw the kitchen sink at me, I don't flinch. Because when uh, our agenda is clear in terms of what, what we are standing up for, or, or the, the special interest groups against us, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because we, I know that when we are with the people, nothing can possibly go wrong. So that's my aspiration in the world of politics. I'm a high-tech guy. You know, when, when all this is said and done, Eric, I'll go back to my high-tech leadership role. So I will not be a career politician. I'll get in there, we'll solve some big problems, big challenges, step up for the people, and then we'll walk away into the sunset. And <laughs> if you would like to join our team, if you are here in Silicon Valley, and even, in fact, even if you are in different parts of the world, in different parts of America, join us because we need the help. We have created a grassroots team of hundreds. We have uh, many high school, college students. We have students from Johns Hopkins, from Boston College, from UC Berkeley, from uh, UCLA. You know, we have lots of great students, super talents who are joining this team. And we obviously need money as well, which is a little bit difficult now in the world of coronavirus. But we are, we are, we are quite poised to win this race because the world needs new, new leadership. You know, we need the new generation of the new brand of leadership that are really standing up tall for the people. And that's what we are pledged to do. And I would be very honored to have your support. And uh, over the next uh, few months, I would love to also get your feedback, Eric, in terms of what else we can tweak along the way. And let's stay in touch. Absolutely, Rishi. I really enjoyed our conversation and, you know, getting to know you and hear about your platform and connecting with someone on the other side of the country. And um, I'm, I've never been to California. So my dad lived in Ventura, California from 65 to 68. I don't know how far that is from you or if that's near you or whatever, but uh, I've always wanted to get out to California and I got some friends out there and now I have a new friend, Rishi Kumar out in California. So um, I'd love to get out there and visit uh, hopefully one day. So please do. And Cullen and I, you know, we, we live pretty close by. We'd love to hang out with you. Oh, it would be great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in today. And please check out Rishi Kumar at rishikumar.com. Follow him on social media and, um, you know, send him a message, tell him how he's doing. And uh, you can find us uh, Jackman Radio on all your social media platforms. And we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. Thanks again for tuning in. And we will see you next time. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Eric. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the evening. Thanks, Rishi. Take care, man. You too. Bye. Peace. Bye-bye.